Jim, you know what I love the most about living in the city, raising a family in the city is just there is so much stuff to do all the time. My kids are always like, let's go down to the bean. Let's go to the big, they call it the big park, which is right next to the bean. Oh, Millennium Park. Yeah, that's cool. I I agree, Jason. I've lived here in Chicago my entire life and I have an affinity for this city like no other. When I tell people about Chicago, I always say, you know, it truly is the best place in the world to live and have a good time. Our restaurants, our Broadway, our our theater, the neighborhoods, the culture, our sports teams, the Cubs, the Bears, the Hawks. Why would anybody want to come to Chicago? What is the best reason to come to Chicago in 2018? Well, first of all, IMTS. Well, there you go. That's a good start. And, you know, Chicago O'Hare and Midway, two major airports that service the city, very easy to get in and out of from any metropolitan area. I bet there's hundreds of nonstops from all over the entire country to get in every day. So plan a vacation. Come to IMTS. When is it, Jim? It's uh, September 10th through September 15th. That's six full days. That's Monday through Saturday. And if you want some referrals for restaurants, Jason, I'll be happy to help you. Yeah. And if if September of 2018 is anything like September of 2017, it is going to be perfect weather, 80 degrees. I agree. See you there. Book now, imts.com. That's how economies work. Why did your competitor go out of business? It probably was because they weren't quite as good at doing business as you were. You either had better technology, better workers, whatever it is, you survived, they didn't. And because of that, we're probably going to see a lower cost. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts, business owners, metalworking experts, and guys who get dirty on the factory floor, Jim Carr and Jason Zanger. Now, let's make some chips. Hello, Metalworking Nation. My name's Jason Zenger, and this is Making Chips, where we equip and inspire manufacturing leaders just like you. And we are coming to you live from the DMDII. And if you're used to playing the alphabet game with us, that stands for the Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Institute. Very good, And Jason. I am here with a very innovative guy, my good friend and co-host, Jim Carr. Hey, Jason. Well, thank you for that very kind and luxurious introduction. Yeah. I am sitting here in our in our home studio here at the, the UI Labs at the DMDII in Goose Island, Chicago. It's such a pleasure to come here. Uh, the place is, is so dynamic. and The machines were buzzing when we came in. I know. Which was great. They were making chips. They were making chips. We love that. Yes. So, yeah, it's always a great to come here, and, and we, we have a great guest, a, a repeat guest that pe- our listeners have been asking about today. Back by popular demand. You bet. And uh, I'm excited to introduce him in, in just a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's it's always good to be here. It's a, it's, a, it's a great day. Things are really good in manufacturing, and uh, I hope the trend continues. Yes. But with that, I want to share, you know, 
with you and the listeners what has been going on you know a car machine and tool most lately because that's that's what I do in my day to day that's 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 where I get my paycheck from sometimes but uh no things have been really crazy busy i i don't i don't know what's driving it i'm not gonna add well, you're driving it hopefully I, well i that, am that's what a manufacturing leader needs to do they need yeah, to drive their but, own success you know i still think there's a little bit about luck oh of course. economy and and what what's happening in the industry yes i mean if you're not relevant and you're not out there and you're not trying to promote business it's not going to come your way but I, I've been seeing so many good things and, and prospects and new business uh, just in the last six weeks. Well, that's great. I mean, you have some, you have, you had a new opportunity that just um, dropped in your lap that could significantly you know, change the landscape yeah, of yeah, car machine. Yeah, yes. that'd be, that'd be awesome. I'm not, I'm not I'm very gonna, happy for you. Thank you. Um, it's, it's exciting. And I've been, uh, ta- am I, am I one of the only, you know, few people that know this secret yes, thing? Okay. It is. It's, it's not a secret. My, of course my team knows because I, I was tasked with amping up for this production and I told him six months. So just this morning uh, I met with my office manager, Linda, and I said, uh, I'd like you to get a a Gantt chart started so we can track the progress of this uh, new car machine and tool, how we're going to revamp the company over the next six months and uh, task out and delegate all these responsibilities to everybody within the team. So That's great. Do you know what Gantt stands for? Yes. It's G-A-N-T-T. And there is one person, the last name of the yeah, person is Gant. Okay. I was trying to trick you with my no, question. No, no, I, I learned about this. I, I Actually, I, I didn't know about that three years ago, but um, I think it's a great idea. It's a great way. It's a visual uh, way to track your progress when you when you have something that needs to get done. A big project. In the simplest of terms. Yeah, it's in the simplest of terms. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. Good. And, um Hopefully, we can buy some more uh, tools and tool holders from That'd Zangers Industrial. Yeah. It's it's all good. How about you? What's going um, on, Zangers? Yeah, I, I told you about this recently, but um, I, I'm very excited about this. I invested in some online marketing training. So, we have this program. We, we call it our VIP program. And I'm trying to figure out how to articulate how we handle our VIP customers, what we do differently than our competition. I love that. Um, it's it's a it's our transparent business model where we you know sell tools at our cost, and then we have a um, transparent management fee on top of that. And I'm trying to figure out how do I articulate this message and communicate this more effectively to the marketplace. And so I invested in this this program called the Marketing Seminar from Seth Godin, and um, basically it's a video series that you watch a video. And Seth Godin puts up some questions for you to answer, and you post those questions in an online forum, and then okay. there's people with that are in the same place that you are trying to improve their marketing message who you know, ask you questions and help you to improve your messaging. And you're kind of like going through this course that's being, you know, facilitated through a video by this, you know, who, who somebody who I think is, you know, one of the top 10 marketing um, gurus of our time. And then it's being facilitated by the audience. It's kind of a unique, um, a unique platform that I'm really excited about. And it's, it's, it's really helping me to be more clear in my, um, in how I want to position this in my messaging and yeah. everything. So, because I think, you know, clarity is, is key to getting your message across. It's just like, you know, with making chips, 
it's it's very simple what we do. We want to equip and inspire manufacturing leaders. I mean, and, and we bring people on that you know are smarter than us in a lot of other places in order to do that. So we're I'm not sure. going to bring a doctor on. No, we're not going to bring in a lawyer on. No. Well, we could bring a lawyer on as it relates to you know a manufacturing law issue. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, in general, yeah. yeah, yeah, we want to be really clear about what we're doing. So yeah, so that's what I have going on right now. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Well, I have some manufacturing news. Before we get to that, can I share some of my personal news that I'm very Absolutely. excited about? So I've got yeah, baby number four coming pretty soon. Can you believe that? <laughs> well, I, I will. I will tell the listeners that that isn't the newest news for me. Jason did. Of course, we're good I already friends. told you. Yeah, he told me, but I weeks think I can ago, officially announce this. Now my it's wife, official. My you wife just, doesn't listen to the podcast, and you know we've just gotten past the first trimester, so I think it's you know it's it, it's relevant to be able to announce this to the world that yeah we have baby number four coming, which I'm very excited about, and uh, I'm you, very you know, excited. Yeah, about it. It's a great. Yeah. It's I think awesome it's time news. to stop though. I think well, that's that's your yours and Amanda's problem, not mine. <laughs> I can't help you stop. You're going to have to do something about that on your own. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm, I genuinely, I'm really happy for you. Um, you know, it's it's a lot. You're going to have four kids. That's that's more. That's one more than me. That's twenty. Whatever that is, twenty five percent more. Whatever. It's a lot. I. You better start saving for that college education, or else have them go into a manufacturing. They're, or they're going to have to be really smart. One of those things. Or all of the above. Or all of the above. Exactly. But that's that's. Uh, I wish you the best. Thank and, you. And um, happy, healthy baby. And yeah. I hope you get a girl. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I'd have two girls and two boys then. So yeah. That'd, that'd be, be awesome. That'd be, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, That's good. So, yeah, it's very exciting. The world knows now. Yes, now the world knows. <laughs> yeah. So I have some manufacturing news, and uh, the article is on Forbes. You know, I, I I love Forbes because I think they're a legit news agency, and uh, there was a contributing editor named Liz Long, and she talks about three ways to lower your manufacturing costs. And of course, that screamed at me as I was scrolling through the headlines on my uh, Google manufacturing news. And, uh, you know, it really, it didn't really tell me anything I didn't know, but I just want to briefly go over it real quick. So the first one that Liz talks about is is tweaking your design. So you've got this new design. It's a new product. The engineer is really excited about it. He's proud of it. His boss is happy. But at the end of the day, when he brings that to a machine shop and they look at it, they say, oh, my God, that material you spec'd out is going to cost you you know, 10 times more than just a typical 6061 aluminum or, wow, the tolerances you have on yeah, there do you are super... Need that tolerance. Do you need that tolerance? Do you need that kind of, you know, do you, do you need that specialty metal? I mean, these are all, these are the very basic things that the engineers out there can do to really drive down the cost, the manufacturing cost. The one thing that I hear most often is, is that there's always a disconnect be- with tolerances, between engineering and design and the manufacturing side because I don't know that they always communicate as to is this tolerance level completely necessary. Right. And sometimes uh, it is. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. The thing is they have a tendency to over-tolerance every single thing on the print. Which costs more money. Which costs more money because, you know, we make parts to print. If it's not to print, we can't ship it to to the customer. So, tolerance it within reason and your cost will be dramatically driven down. One other thing, you know, these are all things that I kind of knew, but another thing that she said is negotiate with your suppliers. Mm -hmm. So I would think that she means your 
finishing service company if you're having if you're sending it out for you know black anodized gold chromate electroless nickel any of your heat treating anything that is secondary negotiate with them up front before they get the job have them do a formal quote on it get a, get about 3 quotes come back find the guy you like and say you know can you can you discount your price yeah i mean i i think it comes down to more just more than just discounting your price i think that if the only thing you're thinking about is like how do you discount your price i think that that's like you know kindergarten level as far as you know business acuum goes. Um, I think it's about having a, you know, a robust relationship such that you can both drive costs out of the supply chain, out of the processes and everything like that. Um, and I think that that's when you really start to amp up your business. Yes, you, you would think so. And the last one is remove packaging, which I thought that was really an odd thing. But what she's trying to convey in the article is if you if you don't put the appropriate size part in the appropriate sized box, if you will, or crate, you've got all this extra packaging material that's in that box that actually is costing you money. And I didn't think about that at all. You know, from from a a non-production standpoint, I don't think it's relevant, but absolutely, if you're pumping out parts in the thousands, if you don't have the right size package for your part, there's going to be a lot of excessive ancillary waste in the packaging. So yeah, when you Im- never thought about that. When you first said that, I immediately started thinking about my uh, Sonicare toothbrush and how whenever I get that You have package, a Sonicare toothbrush? Yeah. You, are you familiar with Sonicare? It's like the um, rotating yeah. toothbrush. Yeah. yeah. So whenever you get Those that- Those are expensive. Uh, they are, but- you know, I, I need good. a job at Zanger's. <laughs> Whenever you get that um, toothbrush head, it's always so thick in this plastic packaging, and there's so much waste there. It takes me five minutes to open it. I have to go find the scissors. I end up cutting my finger. You know, it's just it's it's a waste of time and money, and you know, for both. Are me you and saying them. it's oversized? It's it's just too much packaging. I, you know why they do that? No, to um, mitigate any potential theft within the store, within the retail store. So what they package a small item in a huge piece. So and typically it's it's an item that is costly. They put a small part that's costly in a big package so people can't just like put it in their jacket and walk out. Oh, that's a good point. Yes. I never that, thought about that. Yeah, I I've 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 always wondered that myself and I've done a little homework on it and that's what somebody had told me. So do me. you think that you could legitimately drive costs down by looking at the packaging? That's that what she's saying and that seems like something more on, you know, I know for you, you're not dealing on the OEM level, um, but for somebody that does do OEM work, that, that could be very relevant. So if there's a, you know, a manufacturer out there who's making, say, like um, dental scrapers or something like that, I know that's that kind of stuff is um, machined by the Metalworking Nation. Um, maybe they, you know, take it from the machine part to packaging and maybe they need to think about, you know, how do I reduce the packaging of this part? It's exa- I think that's exactly what Liz is trying to convey. In her article, well, that's but I'm going to definitely rethink that in my future ways of quoting and packaging, and um, it, you know, it's just one other little piece of information that uh, we all need when we go to quote jobs. Absolutely. So I am ready to introduce our return guest. He was with us back in May of 2016. Had no idea the response 
for his episodes. He was on Making Chips uh, 71 and 72. We split his um, episode into two because it, it was long and it was very empowering and uh, enlightening. And it was and, hard to get him back in the studio. He's a busy guy. He's oh always traveling. Gosh. And, you know, so we're, we're glad that he's here in Chicago with us. That definitely makes it a little bit easier. Absolutely. I know I, I tried to get a hold of him um, many months before and... Uh, uh, I, I said, I've just got to get his date on the calendar uh, so we can get him in and get him talking with us. But anyway, we have back in the studio with us, I'm proud to introduce Bill Strauss. He is an economist with the Federal Reserve Bank. And uh, Bill, welcome back to the Making Chips family. Oh, thank you very much, Jim. And congratulations, Jason, on your uh, fourth coming. And my wife and I appreciate that. Uh, having never had children, you've made up for us. So <laughs> if it was just the two of us got there, we'd have zero population growth. Thank you, Bill. And that, actually, that was a thought process that went, ironically, into my head that there is a um, a downgrade in the in the number of people that are having kids. A lot Absolutely. of people are just having one. And so I, I, I thought to myself, I need to make up for this. Well, we appreciate that. And I took action on it. <laughs> Anyway, I would like to introduce uh, Bill once again and give you a little bit about his bio and his background. Uh, Bill is an instructor at the National Association of Credit Management, NACM, and concurrently a senior economist and economic advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago for the last 36 years. Bill just came into our studio today, and he said yesterday he was just named a fellow at the National Association for Business Economics. The NACM, if you don't know, was founded in 1896 to promote good laws for sound credit, protect businesses against fraudulent debtors, improve the interchange of credit information, develop better credit practices and methods, and establish a good code of ethics. And a little bit about the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago is one of 12 regional reserve banks across the United States that together with the Board of Governors in Washington, D.C., serve as the central bank for the United States. Bill is a certified business economist from the NABE. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Buffalo and his master's degree at Northwestern University, both in economics. Bill, once again, welcome back to the show. It's been 15 months since you've been on, and uh, there's been a lot of change. We've got a new president, a new administration, a lot of backlash. Manufacturing is booming. Manufacturing is booming. I hope it's booming for everybody, but it's booming for me. And um, it, it's great to have you back in. So let's start off with manufacturing because that's what we talk about on Making Chips. It's all about equipping and inspire the manufacturing leader, and that's who listens to the show. Overall, what are you hearing? What are your peers saying about manufacturing right now? And what do you think the next 6 to 16 months are going to bring us? Yeah, so manufacturing, I don't know if I quite use the word booming. I'm glad that uh, your, both your businesses are Thank you. are doing that well. I think it depends on what segments uh, you, you are in. Uh, but clearly, relative to the last time we got together uh, in the uh, early part of 2016, uh, we're seeing an improved uh, activity for the manufacturing sector as a whole. Um, I think in part it's being helped by economic growth that is improving modestly, 
both in the United States but also around the world. Um, to that end, uh, we have seen the value of the U.S. dollar, which peaked earlier this year, uh, scale back somewhat. That is making U.S.-made goods uh, relatively uh, less expensive to foreign consumers, and it's also making imported goods relatively more expensive to domestic consumers. So I think we're seeing a little bit stronger performance for our trade deficit, uh, where where it's not as bad as it was. Uh, And I think that it's in in part helping our manufacturing sector, which had shown little growth over the last few years, is finally beginning to expand, and we're adding manufacturing workers as well for the first time in a long time uh, at just over 150,000 workers uh, in the past nine months. Well, I can definitely tell you it's really hard to find skilled manufacturing help nowadays, and uh, we're doing everything we can to recruit and train those people within my business and within all the peers that Jason and I know. It's definitely in crisis mode right now, but... um, I think we'll get through it. Yeah, um, we will. We, what, what we got s- past the Great Recession, so we can get past this too. Absolutely. What What do you see um, as some of the you know contributing factors into um, what we're seeing in manufacturing right now? You know, we have a new president. Do you think that's a factor, or is this just a, a natural cycle that we're going through, or is this a matter of the um, the strength or weaknesses of the dollar? Well, again, as much as some of it is being driven by improved activity from around the world, I think that has little to do with the the new president coming in. Uh, so I think that strength that we're seeing there is causing uh, this relatively stronger performance for world currencies relative to the U.S. dollar, and hence the dollar weakening has has been part of that support. That being said, we certainly heard from our manufacturers uh, in the early part of this year that it, that they seem to be seeing some some improved activity with regard to orders being released. Orders that had been out there, uh, it seems like some of them were using the expression as if somebody uh, flipped a light switch. You talk about government orders and defense. No, no, okay. no, no. Just uh, I mean, certainly we, there was some of that, but I think it was much broader than that, uh, where there, there was this sense of optimism that things would be different. Uh, and again, they, they, the expression that was used was somebody turned a light switch and. In the latter part of, of of last year, early part of this year, releasing a lot more activity. So, so we're, we're I think there is that sense of of optimism that perhaps things might be a bit different. Certainly, the stock market seems to be reflecting that, where it has continued to move higher. Um, but again, I think overall manufacturing is somewhat better. We're still seeing performance for the overall manufacturing sector that is below its historical growth average. Really? Some sectors doing better than others. Uh, the energy sector, uh, where we saw energy prices move up to uh, you know a fifty dollar price range, uh, which was much better than the lows of twenty six dollars of a few years ago, we're seeing some support there with the oil drilling rigs coming back with with higher performance there. But take the auto industry, which had been the lead. Uh, industry coming out of the Great Recession. We set a record for vehicle sales in 2016, although that was just, you know, 0.4% higher than the previous record, which was in 2015. So it was just a bit higher. Uh, We're seeing that scaling back uh, for the first uh, uh, eight months of this year, uh, where we're seeing sales that are down by uh, just over 2% uh, for vehicle sales. And yet manufacturing overall is still growing. So I think that's a very positive suggestion. It is. It sounds good to me. It's broad-based. 
so so you're seeing um, the automotive industry, and I'm I'm seeing this myself. The production in the United States, based on buying, is going down. The one thing that I see from my customers that are making automotive parts is is that most of these major auto manufacturers are moving more towards like a global platform. So it's not just about, you know, we're, we're making this part for a car that's going on, um, uh, that's going to be bought by somebody here in the United States. It could be bought by somebody in Africa, somebody in the Middle East, somebody in Asia, somebody in Europe. So that seems to be a contributing factor in, you know, yes, the, the U.S. automotive industry is, is starting to get a little more sluggish, but automotive manufacturing here in the United States still could be robust for particular suppliers. That's probably true, but keep in mind that a lot of these global platform type of performances is the fact that you want to have the design and, and, and yes, the sourcing to be uh, uh, universal, but the actual production of the uh, vehicles themselves is becoming much more of a regional type of process. So you might have a, a universal platform, a global platform, but you might have that manufactured several places around the world, uh, which is still going to benefit the U.S. being, you know, the uh, third most populous country in the, in the world. But that being said, I think that when you look at, for example, a lot of the activity taking place in Mexico, uh, a lot of that activity is for actually export outside of Mexico, where they have actually better favorable trade relationships than the U.S. has, especially, for example, down in South America. So uh, I think part of the reason why we see some of that activity is is for that purpose. So if we could do better on some of our trade deals, it could make us a bit more competitive uh, within the United States. Do, do you see those, um, those trade deals getting better in the future compared to what they were, say, a, a year or two ago? Well, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I think when we talk about the new administration, you know, short of some regulatory changes or scaling back on some executive orders that uh, were put in place by the Obama administration, uh, we have yet to really see uh, anything significant uh, policy-wise coming out of this administration. And by that, I'm talking about, you know, we certainly had the the whole health care issue, which still uh, is in limbo. Uh, There's a lot of talk about tax policy changes. And uh, here we are at the very end of September, and we have yet really to see the program. Uh, one is supposedly right on the cusp of being released uh, today, as, as, as we we hear. But to just see those things, it, it, we'd like to see, you know, something that actually gets you know, passed by the Congress, uh, signed by the president, where we could actually then go and analyze and see exactly what those impacts are. Uh, trade deals are another one um, that we hear about. And, you know, uh, we hear about uh, early in the year about the, the this border adjustment tax. We haven't heard much about that recently, which I think all in all is probably a good thing for this country. But uh, that was another type of, of risk because just because you have a, a new type of trade deal, it's not quite clear uh, whether that will necessarily be good or bad uh, for the country. And, and, and being with the Fed, we basically uh, don't weigh in on, on, on what these fiscal programs should look like. But clearly, once they're enacted, we will go ahead and uh, take that into account when we assess what the outlook is for the U.S. economy. You, you said that the current administration is not necessarily driving this manufacturing renaissance that we're seeing now. 
Well, and and may it may not be a manufacturing renaissance for everybody, but we are seeing an uptick in manufacturing. I think it's it would be too early okay, to that's assign fair. anything to okay. the new administration. I don't want to say that they have a, had no impact. Again, I think as they've scaled back some of the uh, regulatory environment, uh, they ha- that has loosened up some activity. As well as the business optimism, uh, you know, if in fact they have released some uh, greater bit of, of business optimism, which might have been restraining activity, mm-hmm. that could be uh, again a possible thing that is driving some of what we're seeing. But how do you exactly, you know, give credit for that? It's it's it's, right. it's, it's difficult. Well, the media has a way of sensationalizing everything, so you you never really know. All I know is what we can see and what we can articulate here in our own businesses, but. Um, you know, you mentioned the stock market. Let's talk about that because I'm I'm hearing a lot of um, people say we're just about there, and I've been you know I've been hearing that for a year to two now, and oh, better better get ready because you know we're going to see a, a downtick in the next couple months, and we we haven't seen it yet. So, and I know your guess is going to be as good as mine, but you probably have a little bit better insight than I do. And I'd just like to know what your feelings are with the stock market and money. Do Is there anything left? Is it is it still going to be a bullish market? Well, unfortunately, again, from the from the Fed standpoint, we don't speculate on where, where the stock market may or may not go. Of course. Um, that being said, uh, the high value of the stock market is helpful for the economy and its performance. Uh, uh, the creation of all of this uh, wealth, and hopefully it's legitimate wealth, Wealth, meaning that we're not in a bubble, uh, is helpful because it induces what we refer to as the wealth effect, uh, where people are looking at their 401ks and other investments that they have, and they're feeling certainly better today than they did a year ago. And that will induce them to maybe spend Spend. a bit of it, not necessarily, you know, all of it, which was uh, a good part of what the housing bubble was, was people took uh, what they appeared to be these capital gains, pulled it out using these home loans, uh, equity loans, and they transferred what what would have been paper losses into real losses, and we had the housing bubble. And Uh, that that was agonizing for everybody. Right. But you don't hear people doing that with the stock market. So if people are kind of accepting the fact that... You know, it, it's, it's going up a lot. Uh, if it has an adjustment, uh, you know, it, it shouldn't have that much of a negative impact if we see a correction in the stock market. By, and by correction, I'm using the, the standard kind of 10% uh, definition. Uh, but right now, we think of it, about it being a, a contributing factor for some of the performance for the economy. Well, I always worry that, you know, if there's, you know, a terrorist attack or God forbid, you know, if you know, we have an issue with North Korea, you know, how that could impact the stock market. But, you know, at the end of the day, anything can happen and it's, it's going to make its effect and, you know, we just hold tight and get through it, right? Absolutely. I mean, so we, we often, you know, we think about what's the underlying trend growth for the U.S. economy and uh, when you think about the we were talking about the, the population growth, the labor force growth, it's uh, uh, about 0.8% here in the United States and by the way, half of that is from native-born population, so all in all, quite slow uh, and half of it is from immigration. So uh, we can grow our economic pie each year by this 0.8%. And then it's that 
uh, doing things more effectively, efficiently, some of what your lead into the show was about and probably what much many of your uh, programs focus on is just doing things more efficiently, effectively, what we call in economics, productivity. Uh, and productivity growth in the U.S. we think of as around one to one and a quarter percent. Add those two together, labor force 0.8, productivity one to one and a quarter percent, and you come up with this uh, 1.8 to 2 percent trend growth for the U.S. economy, which is roughly what we have averaged, just a little bit more than that, over the past uh, eight years. We're in the ninth year of our expansion at, at this point. Um, so we should be able to continue to do that short of something causing people to alter their behavior. And, and, and Jim, you mentioned a couple of them that kind of you think about, uh, whether it's some kind of a domestic uh, terrorist attack or, or something with regard to uh, you know, some kind of military activity sure. uh, that all of a sudden could cause people to instead of doing what they normally do, to hesitate, right? To to pull back and to you know uh, hold off, and that's the kind of thing that puts the economy at risk. I would just say that because our growth since the middle of two thousand and nine has been so moderate, uh, so I just wrote that down. I re- and I was going to say, Bill, I remember when you were on the show back in May, and you said that there has never been a time in our history that has been such a minuscule amount of growth over what period of time? Yeah, we're now in the ninth year of the expansion, and right. I often refer to this kind of as the tortoise-like economy, where it's been kind of moderate and relatively steady growth, uh, and, and and perhaps it's the, it will win the race. I think it's a good race. thing. I think it'll win the race uh, in terms of longevity, because when you look around our real side of our economy, uh, you know, you, you whether you're looking at the housing market, whether you're looking at manufacturing, uh, whether you're even looking at the even the labor markets, there's probably still a bit of room of what we call slack in the economy. But there was not no sector that appears to be too overheated. The one that you might have pointed your finger at might have been the automotive sector, which is currently going through a pullback. Uh, and and if anything, the manufacturing sector as a whole is still expanding. So yeah, I think it puts us domestically at uh, in pretty good shape. Where we have we do not appear to be creating bubbles within the uh, real side of our U.S. economy. So overall, you think that this tortoise economic expansion is a positive thing for a um, society. Well, I'm, so, so now we're getting into more of a philosophical mm-hmm. discussion. You know, would you be better off having an economy which grows at 4% but has a recession every six years or growing at 2% and never has a recession? Forget those recessions. I don't like them. I don't want to well, see another I'll take, one. I'll take the two. Well, yeah. I'll take the two percent in a yeah. recession well, every twenty years. Yes. Well, but but at the same time, if you had a four percent growing economy and a recession uh, every so often of a of a one year duration, you might find out that your average growth over that same period might be averaging three percent. Hmm. So you're that's true. Giving, that's interesting. You're giving up fifty percent of your growth. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. And and as I've mentioned several times when we talk about the recession, for for a strong manufacturing leader, strong business leader of any kind, there's always opportunities in the recession. I made, you know, some great strides during during some of those um, economic downturns. And, you know, so maybe maybe they are, you know, you, you got to look at them from a different perspective. Yeah, we have a very famous economist named Joseph Schumpeter, who, uh, you know, 100 years ago was writing about this and, and referred to it as uh, these recessions created what we call creative destruction, where uh, you have innovation or you have the recessions that basically cleanse the economy. 
I remember holding our very first manufacturing roundtable. We had had an industrial roundtable for many years at the bank, but we started a manufacturing roundtable, and the first meeting was February of 2009. Talk about a period where you know, you're just bringing people together who are just manufacturers to talk about conditions, and everybody you know, was just, you know, just shocked from having just gone through the worst month of the Great Recession, January mm. of 2009. Mm. And one of them was actually talking about the fact that um, you know they were very sad because they were actually growing. They actually were doing uh, some some growth at that point, but they were pointing out that they were growing because customers of a, of, of theirs of a, of a competitor had come to them saying, "Our competitors, uh, your competitors, going out of business. We need to get work done. Can you give us some business, or can you give us some product? We're going to give you some business." Uh, and they were sad about that that they were actually, as he expressed it, you know, going on the bones of, of their competitors to grow their business. But I had to explain that's how economies work. Why did your competitor go out of business? It probably was because they weren't quite as good at doing business as you were. You either had better technology, uh, better uh, you know workers. Uh, better whatever, culture. Whatever it is, you survived, they didn't. And because of that, we're probably going to see a lower cost uh, because probably he's a higher cost type of manufacturer going out of business, it winds up creating this competitive advantage for the U.S. As we see this cleansing effect, it, it's you know it's the, we talk I talk about how unemployment and bankruptcy are two evils that we have in our economy, but these are necessary evils. These are allow the businesses and industries that are not cutting it to basically go out of business, shed their workers, releasing their workers to those businesses that are expanding. So you don't have the kind of tight labor markets you're talking about. You have the resources of, of, of whether it's uh, loans from banks uh, or, or workers from other companies to be able to grow your, your more expanding business. So talking about another um, tragedy that recently happened, we've seen you know several natural disasters coming to the United States. So we've had, you know, the these hurricanes that have caused, you know, just tragic destruction, you know, people's lives, people's, you know, homes, people's businesses. Setting all that tragedy aside for a second, what what how does that affect the economy on a macro level? How does it affect manufacturing specifically when you have, you know, say a city like a Houston that just got decimated? Right. I mean, like you said, these are tragic events and the words necessary to be said that, you know, short of, of the human tragedy that took place, uh, this is going to have an uh, impact on, on the economy as a whole. So the short-term impact is that it's going to reduce our GDP. Uh, GDP is the final value of all goods and services produced in a certain period of time. Well, in the third quarter, you're producing between July and September. And, you know, we had our fourth largest city that evacuated and a lot of industries had to shut down. Right. Um, uh, you had Florida, similar kind of, of uh, evacuations taking place. So all those people uh, were not doing the kind of productive work, as well as, you know, uh, we saw all, all of the, the, the damage that took place. Um, so the impact on GDP is going to be to lower the third quarter uh, for, for growth of the economy as a whole. So that will be something that we have to you know, take into account and not be surprised by. So when we wind up seeing a very weak, relatively speaking, third quarter, you have to take out the fact that we don't have hurricanes every quarter. Uh, this is an unusual event and it's a temporary event. That being said, 
the rebuilding activity will cause GDP to be stronger than it otherwise would be. Like fourth quarter? Be. So beginning in the – probably right. already now in the third quarter, but certainly beginning in the in the fourth quarter, we're going to see some strong contributions to a more positive growing economy and probably going well into next year as we see rebuilding uh, taking place, as well as perhaps some infrastructure projects uh, to try to prevent uh, any weaknesses that were unveiled uh, with regard to this particular, uh, you know, devastating hurricanes. Um, so the – In fact, four times a year, the Federal Reserve puts together what is known as a summary of economic projections, the SEP as it's referred to. The last one we had – There always has to be an acronym in there for something, right? Right. Uh, And uh, we had one – the one in June, uh, and we just last week came out with the September – uh, update, and it's interesting. Even with all the knowledge that was ex- we have with regard to Hurricane Harvey and Irma, uh, and uh, even even the Maria that went through uh, San Juan, uh, Puerto Rico. Yeah. Uh, at this point, uh, the Fed has actually increased their outlook for growth for for this year uh, by two-tenths of a percent relative to what it was in June. And that, I think, is part of that natural disasters are good for GDP. Now, it might be good for GDP, but it's not necessarily good for the economy as a whole because that would argue that, man, we should have natural disasters all the time because it <laughs> improves GDP. Well, we can't necessarily control that, though. Well, we can't control it, but I just want to make sure that people are, are aware that when we talk about natural disasters being good for GDP, what's really happening is that, uh, uh, for example, estimates are that we might have lost as many as half a million vehicles, as one example. Like so, in Houston Like or in Florida. Houston, all the flooding and, and, and new vehicles that were Sitting at dealers' lots that could not be moved out in time, uh, and and so those vehicles uh, are, are all going to need to be replaced. And and so let's say that you had a, a two-year-old vehicle, uh, so now you need to replace that vehicle with a newer one. Well, you had not planned on buying a new vehicle for a couple of years, so uh, all your GDP impact on that new vehicle is is taking your vehicle in to get its oil changed and whatever service that you might need. All in all, not very much. But now you're going to have to uh, take that vehicle, discount it to scrap, basically, and have all that money spent. Uh, and now instead of spending, you know, $100 on oil changes in the quarter, you will now replace it with a $30,000 vehicle. Sure. So uh, that will have, a, a, you know, a much bigger impact. So the question is, you know, uh, where does that money come from? Well, clearly insurance companies are going to cover a, a portion of that, but there's going to be a lot of damage that is not going to be covered. So as people have to fix up their homes, replace furniture and so forth that was destroyed, um, you know, we're going to find out that a lot of people are going to be probably dissaving. And part of that dissaving is also going to be that maybe you were planning on taking the family on a vacation for the holidays. You're probably not going to do that because Because you've got to replace your car. You've got, you've got other expenses. You've got to augment the purchase. Right. Right. And, and, you know, cover the, you know, maybe you had good, good insurance, but maybe you have to cover uh, the, the, the part of your insurance that was, you know, your deductible. So uh, that will, will lower your savings. And you might say, you know, we can't afford to, to do X, Y, or Z. So it will pull back some spending that otherwise would have taken place. We can't uh, take the film out of that San Juan, Puerto Rico vacation that we right. wanted to. Yeah, well, that, uh, San Juan is, yeah. I mean, uh, Puerto Rico is a whole other story right. just I'm, because fiscally uh, that they're uh, in bad shape. they were in terrible shape beforehand. And the question is, where's the money going to come from to rebuild? Uh, you know, I've often joked about, and it's not really 
a joke, unfortunately, that uh, Puerto Rico made Illinois look good fiscally. Uh, they were on a whole other <laughs> level. Uh, but, uh, you know, Illinois, just uh, in the last, uh, uh, there was this report that came out of the Mercator Center, uh, George Mason University, that it was ranking states on a fiscal uh, ranking of, of their fiscal health. And uh, New Jersey was the worst. So I guess that's a positive thing for Illinois. But Illinois was ranked 49th. Uh, so uh, we're, we're not in very good shape. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, we're seeing loss of population. Uh, Chicago is probably the worst fiscal city in the country. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a real problem for the state of Illinois and Chicago in terms of attracting business and growing and, 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 and so forth. How, how does the local economy affect a, a manufacturing company, even if that manufacturing company is, say, their business is not in that local economy. So, so, so somebody with a manufacturing shop here in Illinois, are they at a disadvantage being in Illinois versus a um, versus another state that might be more fiscally responsible? So we're certainly hearing that from our manufacturing contacts uh, at our roundtables and, and call-arounds that we do for the, the putting together what's, what we call the Beige Book. This is our uh, collection of anecdotal information from our manufacturing. And we do this by talking to manufacturers, both by telephone calls. We have roundtables that take place at the bank. I go to quite a few trade shows. I was just out at a container show out in Long Beach, LA, to talk about uh, trucking and railroads and and, and the shipping companies. Um, and, and, And when you talk about the ones in Illinois, what they will often talk about is that they are very nervous, very concerned. And uh, they, as they talk about expanding their businesses, you know, they're looking at, uh, you know, alternatives, whether uh, to relocate altogether or maybe, in fact, to, you know, just open a satellite uh, facility. And, and, and especially we've heard from some of the ones who are on the border where they can keep their workforce. You talk about how, how good workforce is very is very challenging. We've heard from, from a few of the manufacturers that are on the borders that, you know, if we open up either in Indiana or in Wisconsin, uh, we can have our people commute, you know, not that much further. Some of them might even already be living in those uh, right. states uh, and that uh, we can pretty much keep a very large share of our workers and, and, uh, and, and avoid what's taking place in Illinois uh, on the fiscal side. Well, I mean, my, my wife and I live in Chicago in the city and um, my wife's company is in Hammond, Indiana, which is right on the border there. And, you know, there, there, you definitely can um, see that there's a, there's a difference in the way that um, that state is managed uh, versus Illinois. It's, it's drastic. Yeah. So we, so we, we, we look at these issues. Uh, so I would say this, that, you know, when you look at the growth rate of employment in manufacturing or the growth rate of our total employment relative to our neighboring states, uh, Illinois and Chicago uh, are suffering uh, relative to uh, the neighboring uh, states and cities. So the question is, why is that? And I, and I, Want to believe that the why? You know, why is that, Bill? Why is that? Do you it's, really want to get political? I well, I don't, I don't. I don't. But you know what? It agonizes me. It pains me to live in this state, and and you know, and to have all this animosity, and you know, the the thirty five percent state income tax increase, and you know. I mean, I'm a small company, but yet I can just imagine the big companies, they, they need to, their, their profit margins are very slim and they need to move to states that are going to, you know, stand there with their arms wide open. They're going to give them tax breaks. Um, 
Why is it, Bill? A couple of things I would say. Number one, it's it's a surprising outcome because, you know, the states are supposed to be and we, we're supposed to be running a balanced budget, which would mean that you are collecting as much as you are spending. And therefore, the net change on your debt should be zero. Sounds pretty easy to do. Well, Jim and I have to do that. Yes. And, and the manufacturing leaders out there, the, the, the metalworking nation, they have to do that or else you go out of business. Yeah. It's a very simple formula. Right. But so obviously there has been something taking place where obligations that were, were, were made, commitments were made and, and not funded. Um, and, and so things were built up to on the pensions in particular that we we owe. And there were uh, constitutional amendments that were put forward that make it difficult to deal with the problem that's have been built up, uh, one of which is that a pension, one's promise, cannot be diminished, according to the Illinois State Constitution, which in essence protects the uh, pensions. But it only protects it in terms of guaranteeing that you can't lower them. Uh, but the problem is, how do you fund them? Where do you get the money from? And if you are, in fact, losing people out of the state, uh, their pension uh, obligations are gone. Uh, and uh, so, you know, while while the Constitutional Amendment promised that they would be, you know, you, you they can't be diminished, they weren't there was no constitutional amendment that they'd be funded. And I think that's part of the problem here. Uh, we also have a constitutional amendment with regard to a flat tax in the state, uh, which means that anything to try to be a bit more uh, progressive, where you have a higher tax rate for higher uh, uh, earning individuals, that's not uh, part of, of what we what you can easily do in the state. So it's, it's a challenge. But one thing I would offer up is we have an economist who works for uh, the Chicago Fed, uh, Rick Mattoon. I would encourage you to invite Rick to uh, join your program, and he can get a lot more into uh, the details of how we got into this, as well as he's been very thoughtful in thinking about what can be done to try to resolve the problem. Um, I'm, I personally am, am, am thinking it's, it's a real challenge, given the position we are in at this point. It was not built up over the last few years. This has been going on for decades, as uh, Rick would be able to, to share with you. So how, how do you dig yourself out of a hole that's been built up over over decades. Well, one of the plans put forth has been to divide Illinois into three parts and, um, you know, get rid of the state. Well, you could talk to Rick about that and he yeah. maybe give you his opinion. I, 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 I think I'm going to re- no reach out to Rick. I'm not advocating for that, but it's, it, I've seen- I've not I've, heard that. I, I've seen the uh, the imagery of, of what that looks like and, it, and it's quite interesting. You know, I've heard that about California as well. So uh, it, it can go either way. You know, California is- a, a, a state that has a, a poor fiscal plan as well. So, uh, right. But, but anyway, what, what California has going for it is the fact that people have a desire to live near that beautiful ocean um, and the and, mountains and mountains. And whereas, uh, you know, I don't want to knock our farmland uh, in the central part of the state, but you know, outside of the beautiful downtown Chicago area, uh, you know, what else is is all that attractive that we can bring people into to, to the state to uh, take advantage of? Um, well, the, the fact that we don't have those distractions, um, nobody works harder than than us us in the Midwest. There I you mean, go, you know, Touché. so because we're not distracted there by you, you know the uh, the we're, nice yeah, waves we're not, we're or not, we're not surfing or, or out the there, yeah. or anything like that. Well, Bill, it, it's always insightful and it's fantastic to have you in our studio and 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 get your ideas 
and reflections on, on where you think we're going and what's really happening outside of our, the world that we live in on a day-to-day basis. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for spending the time with us today. And I know our listeners are going to be you know happy that you're back on and uh, have enlightened them a little bit more. Very good. And hopefully next time I join you, we'll be continuing to talk about this uh, expanding economy of ours and getting into uh, record territory in terms of its duration, which the longest one was 10 years back in the 1990s. We're uh, we're approaching that. That would be nice. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Great. So, Jim, you know, that was that was super informative. I really enjoy having Bill on here. I know he's not he he's he's part of the, I guess, extended manufacturing leadership family. He's you know, I could talk to him for hours. Yeah. I mean, he's got some great insights. He's, you know, specializes in manufacturing for the Federal Reserve. So it, it's great to have him on the show to talk to the manufacturing leaders and just to give everybody some insight into, you know, what they should expect from the economy. And, you know, it, it's just it's some good information to have. Yeah. And, you know, I, as I always say at the end of the uh, episode in, in the disclaimer area, Jason and I don't know it all. And we're certainly not economists. We're certainly not economists. I certainly know how to balance a budget, but I can, the, I can muddle my way through a lot of subjects, but not economics. No, definitely not. But it's so, you know, it's so empowering. You know, you're, you're listening out there and Jason and I are here in the studio and you, we're we're getting the aha moment as you all are as you're listening to this, and hopefully we're empowering you and equipping and inspiring you to make better decisions and go forward in your manufacturing companies and just be all around better citizens, better manufacturing leaders, and better with your fiscal practices. Yeah, and make better decisions in for your manufacturing companies. At the end of the day, if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. Please go on, rate and review. Go to iTunes. I was um, just going to say comments that. out there. Um, we love um, hearing back from the Metalworking Nation. I mean, seriously, when we get a, a voicemail or an email, um, we love getting those. We've developed some relationships with um, people from the Metalworking Nation, um, other manufacturing leaders that you know email us, reach out to us, leave us a message. Um, we'd love to hear back. We don't always get back to all of our messages and all of our emails right away. Way, but we do love to to hear from you. And um, Jim and I have a lot of, like I said, friendships that we've developed from people that we would have never met if they wouldn't have emailed us or, or called into the show. Jason's absolutely right. And in closing, what a coincidence that the mantra of our show is uh, kind of parallels with or dovetails with what uh, Bill was here to talk about today. And that's that mantra that my dad used to tell me, Jim, if you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. Bam. This podcast exists to improve the manufacturing industry. We want to hear from you, the owners, managers, leaders, and engineers from the metalworking nation. What ideas do you want to share and what keeps you up at night? We want you to take something away from this podcast that you can use to improve your company, your team, and yourself. So let us know what you want to hear, and we'll see you next time on Making Chips. 